Hello, I'm Meg Walker and welcome to My Kind of People. Join me as I speak to leaders and community members across the world who all share a passion for positive change. Each week we'll explore the power of community, leadership, passion and positivity and the beauty that can be created when these values come together. Each guest has been a big inspiration to me and I'm grateful to call them my kind of people. I hope they'll be yours too. I'm so excited for us all to connect really soon, but until then, I'm sending big love, good vibes and positive energy. Who are your kind of people? In this episode, I'm delighted to introduce you to Ben Smith, the founder of the 401 Foundation, a nonprofit that was set up in legacy of Ben's unimaginable 2016 challenge of running 401 marathons in 401 days to raise over 330,000 pounds for two anti-bullying charities. Ben continues to positively impact the people around him and uses his time and energy to raise funds to help the 401 Foundation continue its life-changing work. The 401 Foundation helps to provide accessible grants to grassroots and community projects who are helping support individuals, community groups, and organizations by building self-confidence, self-esteem, and promoting positive mental health. Ben is a huge inspiration to the running community. He has been an incredible inspiration to me on my own fundraising journey. And he is definitely my kind of person. And I have no doubt that he will soon become your kind of person too. So welcome to the podcast, Ben Smith. Thanks, mate. Wow, what an introduction. <laughs> what a guy. That's all oh, I have thanks. to say. Road itself. <laughs> you make me blush. <laughs> <laughs> and I can see it in full, full definition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But Ben. Um, I know you are well into the start of your training and all the organization for your next challenge. So genuinely, thank you so much for sparing some time to come onto the podcast today. And before we discuss your latest challenge and how the training and all the work is going on behind the scenes, I like to start each episode by mentioning how myself and the guest cross paths. Now, I probably think your first recollection of me was most likely me reaching out for you to be a guest on the podcast. Mm -hmm. But I actually first met you very briefly during a past London Marathon race. Wow. Okay. Ran past (laughs) all very quick. But I remember the atmosphere around you was just so lovely. There were so many runners including myself and my friends that were so happy to see you running there and the awareness that you were spreading for the causes, especially as I think so many of the runners around you most likely joined you on some of your marathons that you did in their local area. Um, And it was just, I just remember it so clearly in the race. It was just such a powerful Mm. atmosphere. And do I, which one was it? Was it, was it? um, I think, did you run 2017? So yes, I did. Um, that was the year after I'd finished. And I actually, it was my other half, my husband's first ever marathon. Amazing. So, yeah, because yeah, I think yeah. he was with you. Because yes. I, I was like, I'm, sh- I'm sure it was after your challenge. So I'm glad yes. it was because I myself was actually in a massive costume. Um, really? <laughs> yeah. oh, please don't tell me you were one of the armadillas that overtook us. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't, but oh. we are absolute legends. So I was, yeah. I was in a five-person costume and we were being Scooby-Doo and the Mystery Machine. Oh my God. And we were raising money for Click Sergeant, Young Lives versus Cancer. So And you ran the marathon in that costume? We did, yeah. That, that did. deserves a medal in its own right, <laughs> I, I find it hard to run a marathon as it is, let alone dressed up. And it's quite hot around the London Marathon as well. Yeah, well, we did a six-person costume in 2018, and that was a heat wave, and that was no joke. I think we had to get to the race super early for, like, interviews and things. Yeah. And I think it wasn't even 7 o'clock in the morning, and we were, like, sweating for our costumes. And we were like, <laughs> okay, this is going to be a tough one. So for you to do that 401 times, oh, my goodness me. And um, it was so special seeing you during that race because having seen what you did the year before, 2016 was my first marathon. And it was so exciting doing my training with all this build up about you because you were running around the country at various parts. 
So yeah, to be inspired by you and what you did for charity to then see the next year doing my own charity fundraising was just such a wonderful moment. And um, it was so lovely that you were there with your husband supporting him on his first yeah, I don't think he felt the same on the day, to be honest with you. <laughs> I've got, if we get a chance, I've got a funny story about that marathon that I'll be able to tell you. So. No, please do go ahead. Why not? Oh, right. Okay. Now. Yeah. Well, it, it was kind of coming up to the finishing line, really, because we trained together a little bit now. A lot of people that, that know both of us know full well that when we first met, he hated running. He, that <laughs> he thought I was a big weirdo. Bit similar to the feelings I had when I started to run, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. But yeah, but he he kind of it was during the time after the 401 challenge, so kind of late part of 2016, early part of 2017, where he was he was getting we were kind of coming to terms with obviously the after effects, the mental mm-hmm. after effects of, of the project and the impact that it was having. That he decided that he was going to put in for a place for the London Marathon, thinking he'd never get it, but at least he'd be able to kind of go. Do you know what? At least I tried. Yeah. And so all was he got in. No way. Like, oh my God, I've got a train now. <laughs> so anyway, he, he told me over dinner uh, one night when you were able to go out for dinner, you know, you remember those times. Yeah, <laughs> it's a distant um, memory, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, he, um, he told me and I obviously cried like a baby because I thought, oh my God, this is brilliant. We can train and we can do this together and it'd be fantastic. And, you know, they say couples that train together stay together. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> to be honest with you. But, uh, but yeah, we made it through and we, you know, we followed the program and stuff and we got to Marathon Day and everything kind of went really well. And we were running with our friend Hitton, who was part of the BBC uh, Radio 2 Children in Need group. Amazing. Um, so he headed it up and, and that with uh, the Chris Evans team. And um, we all ran together for the whole thing. And, you know, obviously you have your different points, don't you, in a marathon way, you mm-hmm. know, if you feel like you're going to die, you feel like you're elated, you feel like you're crawling when you're <laughs> sprinting and actually you're crawling. But it got to the final kind of stretch down Birdcage and, you know, where you kind of get to the point where you suddenly see Buckingham Palace and you turn that point. And, you know, we were really, really lucky to kind of make some amazing friends throughout the the 401 Challenge. And and some of those friends were were quite well-known personalities within the athletics industry, including Steve Cram and Paul Radcliffe and Steve's other half, Alison Kervishley. And and as we kind of made our way around Palace, and see is Alison screaming out going Kyle <laughs> and Steve Paula Radcliffe with a chocolate cake that they'd gone and bought from Tesco Express <laughs> they handed the cake to Kyle to which he then palmed it off on me he got hugs from them and I said look don't expect this at the end of every month because this is just unheard of and anyway they cheered him on and you know we kind of ran the final bit so I'm running down the the stretch to the finish line with this chocolate cake in my hand She's so random. <laughs> and then we cross the finishing line. It's a bit of a joke because anybody that was part of the 401 challenge knows that I run for cake. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a clearer definition, you know, of 401 crossing the finishing line on a mental health programme on BBC One with a chocolate cake sound. And it's like, really? But no, it was very memorable that day. It was an amazing. So, and, amazing. and I remember that. So for you to do it in a five person copy, I don't know how you did that. I really do not know how you did that. Well, I, I'm just as in awe. I don't know how you did that 401 times. It's amazing. And um, it's impressive in itself to finish a race. And Paula Radcliffe has bought you a cake from um, Tesco. Well, that was him, Express. not me. <laughs> but very impressive. But yeah, oh, the London Marathon is just iconic. And there's so many good memories you can have. I remember that same year, that was our first year we did a world record. And um, wow. that morning from the start was just crazy because we had to get there early because we were going to be speaking to the BBC. And I just remember them in a rush trying to get various record people together. And they're like, right, we've got the Mona Lisa, we've got the toilet roll, the giant shoe, we've got the mystery machine. Let's go. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. what You're company like, to be in? I when I hear this. <laughs> yeah. I, thought, I never thought that would be a sentence in my life, but um, I'm in great company. And yeah, that turn around the corner at Buckingham Palace just takes your breath away, I think. It's like a movie moment. But the motions, isn't it? Mm, kind of sure. towards that finishing line. And it's, yeah, it's so symbolic. And actually for anybody that does it as their first marathon, it's, it's quite overwhelming. It's quite an overwhelming because, you know, not every marathon is the London Marathon. You know, mm-hmm. even even some of the big five aren't the London Marathon. It is so iconic, but yeah, pretty intense. 
Yeah, amazing. But so special that you got to be there with your husband for that experience. It's special. It's one thing experiencing that for yourself, but to get mm. to watch someone you love experience that for the yeah. first time. Is- I don't think, uh, I think I'd actually asked him to marry me at that point, or it might have been just, no, 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 I think it was after I'd asked him to marry me. So we weren't, I hadn't proposed to him yet. Um, so the fact that he said yes after I made him do that, you know, <laughs> he's a keeper. Well, so. you did carry Kate for him down the mile on national TV. So, you know, he owed you one. He does. Yeah. You <laughs> that. Yeah. Please pass it on. Yeah. I will. <laughs> and um, your fundraising has taken you all over the country. But where would you say that you have grown and flown? So where was your hometown and where would you consider home now? So, um, well, I, I grew up in a military family. So like probably maybe some of your listeners that grew up in the same kind of situation, I, I got to travel the world when I was younger. I, I kind of came back to the UK when I was 10 to, to go to boarding school. And that kind of was in the Nottinghamshire area. I, I wouldn't say I'm from there. I would probably, my mum and dad live in Lincoln now, but then I've really not lived there. But the place I probably lived the most is where I am now, which is in Bristol been here near enough 16 years and I absolutely love the West Country you know I'm going to be biased about it but it's got everything you know I literally live right next to the sea on a marina I love water considering I haven't actually done any challenges yet which involve water (laughs) that might be challenge number three you never know land-based for me at the moment but yeah I you know got some amazing kind of trails and paths around here to run and I just love it it's just a chilled out kind of vibe down here that I really love so yeah I've grown and also flown down here, I suppose. (laughs) Absolutely. And what a beautiful uh, part of the country to grow Mm. in. And where in that journey did you start to develop your passion for running and fundraising? Did you ever think that fundraising would be Mm -hmm. such a significant part of your life? And were you always passionate about running? I suppose no and no. (laughs) To be honest with you, like my, it's funny, it's been, I believe, 10 it'll be well yeah it's near enough been 10 years since my life changed completely literally I went almost 180 wow um I was 29 when I kind of suffered from a a stroke um and unfortunately I lost my sight and my hearing and the feeling in my left arm and my ability to talk and you know I, I was lucky you know because um, my, my symptoms kind of wore off and I was lucky enough for them to downgrade it to what they call a TIA, which is a transient ischemic attack. But mm. I think the whole impact of it shook me up. But what I'd done is I spent most of my life leading this life that I thought people wanted me to lead. You know, I was bullied quite badly at school when I went away to school here in the UK when my parents lived abroad. And I was kind of immersed in this culture, which was very materialistic. And I was told that actually the way I thought was wrong and um, you know, that had an effect on my confidence and my self-esteem. I was being told I wasn't good enough every single day. And then at 13, realizing that I was gay, but then being told that being gay was bad as well. You know, I, I kind of felt like I had to cover all that up and just be what everybody else wanted me to be. So that's what I did. And I led my whole life until 29 like that through two suicide attempts, unfortunately, when it got really bad. And yeah, I don't get me wrong. I, I think I, I was successful on paper. Mm. I think that's a story that a lot of people can relate to successful on paper I was earning 80 grand a year I had my own house I was married to a woman you know we were thinking of a family we had cats you know it was that serious Mm. but what I didn't do was I didn't look after me I didn't look after my health and I didn't look after my mental health at all but where I thought I was happy I wasn't Mm. because I was living in this reality that I had kind of fed from what other people wanted from me so at 29, I was 17 and a half stone, and I was a 40-a-day smoker, and I drank myself under the table every day. As I've told you, I was married in a relationship I shouldn't have been in, doing a job where I was working 80 hours a week, you know, for something, a life that I thought I wanted, but actually wasn't the life that I did. So in a way, and I know it sounds quite crass, but thank God I had a stroke. Because mm. actually, I, even though it was probably one of the scariest moments, and I know how lucky I am because, don't get me wrong, there are so many people that aren't lucky like me mm. and so many people that do have strokes that have lifelong debilitation afterwards. And I know it sounds sad to say that I felt, feel lucky, but actually being given this second chance almost said to me, look, well, don't waste it. Mm. But unfortunately, what happened then was that there's this realisation I had to change, but what I didn't possess 
there's the ability to do that. So I hadn't learned, you know, the skills in how to change or how to move forward. And it's almost like I had to uncondition the way I was thinking, strip everything back to the bare bones, really look at what made me happy in life and what I wanted. But before I could do that, I had to make some tough decisions. I'm in the throes of getting a divorce, coming out. And it was probably a year after my stroke in Bristol, a friend of mine sat me down at a pub and, uh, well, in the Southwest, pint of cider, standard, <laughs> one of a day down here. I'm sure anybody from the Southwest listening will agree. Um, we, uh, we were drinking. I just was moaning at her. And she just said to me, look, I'm sick of it. I've, I've had enough with you. And obviously, I don't know if you've ever had a friend say that to you. Mm. You're kind of taken aback because you think your friend's supposed to be the supportive one. Absolutely. And actually, I think she just had it up to here with what I was saying and just I was moaning about wanting to get fit and healthy and you know not doing anything about it I was this guy I'm gonna do this but didn't and all those things I'm gonna have this life but didn't have this life and all I do is moan about the stuff not do anything she said I'm sick of it I said to her well look what do you want me to do about it and she went well I'm glad you asked (laughs) I went oh yeah (laughs) why don't you come and join my running club and I just remember I'd taken a pip, sip of a pint and I just thought, what? You want me to run? You know, I, I thought, look, I'm 17 and a half, Tony, I'm a 40 a day smoker. I was the guy that drove past runners with a fag hanging out of the car window thinking <laughs> for a weirdos. You know, head to toe clouded in lycra. I thought, I'm 17 and a half stone. I ain't going to look good in lycra. I've got roles, <laughs> you know? And I thought, why would I ever want to do that? My bullies were sports at school. You know, I never had a kind of, excuse me but like a penchant for sport or something like that you know, I didn't I didn't have this kind of ambition to be 40 when I was a kid that was my brother's bag so I'd never really got involved in it and also because my bodies were there I didn't want to attack so to think that sport was going to be something going to get me out of this rut was a complete foreign thing so but you know she pulled me up on it and I kind of thought well I'd better go so I did I rocked up to a running club on a Tuesday night in February and it was freezing cold. I went in baggy tracksuit bottoms, a hoodie. I had my hood up because I thought if any of my mates see me, I could just stop and walk <laughs> as I was going to go down the shop for some milk because I was going to be so embarrassed if anybody saw me. I actually thought my heart was going to beat so fast that I was going to die. Oh my goodness. And all these negative connotations. And basically getting to the door and thinking to myself, yeah, I'm not going to fit in. They're all going to like me. And all those kind of negative things that you feel. And anyway, somebody opened the door and said, are you coming in? I paid 50p into the pot. Turned around and I scanned the room and there were loads of people and there were those really tall, skinny people, you know, in their vests and shorts and it's minus nine degrees outside. They're all <laughs> They're runners. I'm not. Scanning the room for people that look like you. And I found this group of people in the corner that looked like deer in headlights, basically. And uh, they were the Couch to 5K group. And it was that night they were doing the 5K. So I got on with it. Good and for I- you. I remember getting back to the to the pub where we started because that's when my running club starts at a pub and ends at a pub. Brilliant. Great. Bottom <laughs> running club. Um, and I had a pint of cider again, obviously. Everything hurt from my hips to my knees to my ankles. Even the rolls of fat around me hurt. But I think what changed my life at that point was the fact, and again, again, it's going to sound very sadistic, but for the first time in 20 years, I felt something. Mm. It was pain that I felt, but I felt something. I'd been Mm. so numb for 20 years. And actually, it was that moment where I kind of went, maybe there's something in this. I didn't fall in love with running to start with, don't get me wrong. I think it's quite rare. (laughs) Um, You know, some people it does, you know, they're the lucky ones. The rest of us have to work in it. Yeah. You know, know, and I kind of thought, do you know what? Well, I felt something and it made me feel quite good. So I won a bit more of that. And then Mm. progressively over a period of time, you know, I I ran a bit further. I ran my first 10K, my first half marathon. And then I ran my first marathon after a year, which was the Brighton Marathon. That was my first one. Amazing. Boiling hot, around the same time as London. Absolutely sweltering. I made all the rookie mistakes possible. Lots of funny stories in that, but I don't know whether I'm going for it. (laughs) But yeah, that marathon changed my life. I think crossing that finishing line and being handed that medal just was so symbolic for me. You know, it was almost a year to the day that I'd started to run. 
Wow. It wasn't pretty. I'd done done it fast. You know, I'd not followed the textbook. I downloaded, I think, the 16-week training program about a month before. So you can <laughs> kind of imagine how prepared I was. But I'd done it. And nobody could take that medal away from me. And yeah, the power that that gives you, mm. a kind of sense of almost belief that actual barriers almost start to crumble inside you. And actually you start to re- think and almost restitch the way you think about things you almost start to compare a lot of stuff and go well if I can do that then maybe I can do that Mm. and for me running had become something that I call my filing time Mm. my chance to get away from the kind of overwhelmingness of the world you know we're on all the time and we never switch ourselves off from reading Instagram before we go to bed to watch the computer screen or to talking with people and interacting or driving or whatever it is and actually running what that does for me, it gives me an ability to unplug. I, you know, I can have a boggled brain and I can go out running. And I, when I come back, everything's then filed away. And I feel so much better in myself, so much more confident, so much more aware and awake that, yeah, it just became one of those things for me that didn't just help me physically, but it, it helped me mentally. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was quite a journey. Let's just put it that way. It sounds like it. And that's amazing. I'm so, so happy that you found that resource and had that. It's life-saving in a way. Completely, completely. And I suppose, you know, I know we're talking about running here, but anybody that's kind of listening to this, it doesn't have to be running. Nope. It can be anything that you want it to be. You know, my my other half has a passion for reading. You know, he's on a Mm 10-day break at the moment. And he said, I want to read seven books. I couldn't think of anything worse. (laughs) But, you know, to him, that's what he loves. And that's what gets him kind of, you know, chilled out. You know, some people play instruments, some people, you know, cycle, dance, sing. You know, we don't want that to happen on this, you know, (laughs) the whole room out. But it's different for everybody. And I think what I strive to do and what I strive to try and show people is that by finding that thing that makes you truly happy in life, that's right for you, not what everybody else wants you to do. That one thing, how much of an impact that can have. That's what we're trying to show. And that's what the 401 did. Amazing. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. I think it's so, so important to find our passions in life and pursue them. And I think I, I discussed this a lot. I think part of that is like even in the education system, from when we start, everything we're taught is external, right? We're taught how to cope in a world externally. We learn everything outside of ourselves, but we're never taught really to look inside ourselves and how we're mm-hmm. feeling. And unfortunately, that's where we end up in situations where we're not actually trusting our own intuition and what we want. We're looking at all of these outside things mm. and we're so scared to look internally at what I want. We very much are given like this is how life should be. We should be expected to be those things. You know, I'm a 28 year old woman, even still, there's the pressures of like you make it when you've got your car and you've got your house and you've got your family, you know. And almost, isn't it? It's, it's a checklist. Invisible checklist. Mm. Yeah. And you just kind of, yeah, you, you just think, well, yeah, that's that was always on the cards without actually ever stopping to think until much later in life. Well, do I actually want those things? <laughs> it's funny how time actually dictates that either a moment in time that changes your life or time. Because you look at our parents and you look at our grandparents. And, you know, people that are a little bit older than us, you know, I'm 39, I'm, I'm what, almost just over 10 years older than you. But I remember what I was like when I was 28. I mm. felt all those pressures of having to conform and to be successful. I needed this list of things to be in place because unconsciously, that's what we had been taught. Mm-hmm. You know, whether or not it, it wasn't a conscious thing, because I think, you know, thankfully, education is changing around that now. Mm-hmm. You know, it is becoming more about the person-centric approach. Yes, of course, it's going to take time because, you know, you can't, education is such a big shit, you can't just turn it straight away. But you've got so many amazing people out there in the education sector that are really kind of trying to vie for the fact that the child is at the centre of all of this. And we have, we've seen that in the changes in Ofsted and, and, and the way that's all measured over the past couple of years. So it is coming and it will take time to develop. But, you know, for those of us that are a bit older, Mm. We almost kind of went through this period of like, this is what we must have to be successful by this age. If we don't, we failed. And then that makes you feel really bad. And then it makes you feel like you're not motivated to carry on the next step. 
because not everybody wants that kind of picket fence with the you know the four windows and the the door and the house and the cat and all the dog and the family that doesn't work for all of us and actually you know you can see this on a real life example when you look at say single parent families or Mm. or or mums that you know are are divorced and they're they're working and they, they have kids and you know the people ask it's almost like this judgment is is underwritten because it doesn't it doesn't conform to what we all believe the norm is in society and I just find that so wrong Mm. you know but it's going to take time and it's going to take people with a bigger brain and a a bigger mindset to kind of help us get out of this rut that we're in but we're getting there We're, we're moving Absolutely. And if we can be looking at our passions and looking more inwards, that's the way we can start making positive change and making decisions around ourselves. And it's a long journey. Like, look at the journey you've been on. And I can't imagine the euphoria you had when you crossed that Brighton finish line. And even the fact that it was in Brighton with everything you were, you know, carrying and hiding at the time about your sexuality and where you wanted to be to have it in Brighton of all places (laughs) yeah I never thought of that wow yeah it's kind of yeah for me like if you ever watch this there's a YouTube video called the seven stages of marathon running Mm -hmm. but if you haven't anybody listening google it because honestly this video is hilarious it's a cartoon animation and it takes you through every single perfect step of exactly how you feel in a marathon (laughs) Yeah. yeah to the point at the very end where you know, I, I, I didn't unfortunately run across the line at London Marathon. I face planted on the line <laughs> on the marathon. And I that got, works. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, you cross it, you know. Yeah, you cross it. yeah there's no way I was going to let anybody drag me. But um, it was when they handed me the water that was quite funny because I, I knew what it was. But your brain, you'll get this, but your brain doesn't work at the end of 26.2 miles, does it? No. Nope. <laughs> it's like you're in a fog. And they handed me this bottle of water and they forgot to take the top off. Oh I'm no! Sat there just looking at it, just thinking, I know what it is, but they don't know how to use it. <laughs> and then they—that's when they put the medal around my neck, and I just remember thinking, "Yeah, yeah." Funny, I've got it underneath my desk here. I've got the oh, amazing! I won't rummage for it now, but <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it was a very special day that one. Yeah, definitely. I believe it. And like you said, it doesn't have to be running. It's find something you're passionate about and take little steps towards it. Because I don't think there's anything quite like experiencing that understanding, right, of experiencing the euphoria and having that confidence in yourself of crossing that finish line and being like, oh, my goodness, I can do it. People have been telling me, I've been telling myself, but actually I've done it. Kind of experience. Getting to that point, though, that that is sometimes very difficult for people. And I'm, I'm sure people are listening to this now thinking, well, that's all very well and good saying all that. But, you know, it's scary. It is terrifying. Mm-hmm. You know, when you realize that the life you've been leading is not the life that you want to lead, you, of course, and don't blame yourself for sat there thinking, you know, I'll just carry on because it's easier. You know, maybe it's not the perfect life that I wanted. And maybe, you know, I feel like I'm a bit too old to do this or, you know, I can't change because I've got all of these, you know, I wouldn't blame people just to sit there and go, that's fine, easy life. But for me, that wasn't what I wanted. Mm. I had spent 29 years pretending to be something that I wasn't. And actually all the energy and all the stuff that I built up over that time through the suicide attempts to the anxiety, to the lack of confidence, to that almost kind paying homage to you know, this life that I felt I should lead. The moment I decided to come out, the moment I decided to get divorced, the moment I decided that actually I was going to go and do and figure out what I wanted to make me happy, it's like all that energy that I'd used to do all that other stuff before was suddenly free. Mm. All I did was transfer it. And, And actually, that's where I feel that it was right. And don't get me wrong, I didn't wake up one morning and go, do you know what? For, excuse my French here, but for shits and giggles, I'll, um, <laughs> you know, I'll, uh, you probably believe that out. <laughs> but for shits and giggles, I'll go and, uh, you know, run a marathon every day for 400 Mondays because nobody thinks that. That's completely nuts. And even I know that's completely nuts. But it was a journey, you know, mm. from finding that love of running to understanding that running gave me confidence. It gave me my self esteem back. It gave me the, that sense of community. I was never fast. 
I was, mm. that was not why I ran. I ran for cake and the social aspects of it. That's why I ran. Mm. But for me, what running did was it gave me the ability to go and talk to somebody about the things that had happened to me mm. when I was a kid. And I hadn't dealt with that. And actually seeing a counsellor and talking to that lady about all the stuff that I'd been through and actually in an environment that I wasn't being judged in any way, which is exactly the same as the running community. I was never judged there for who I was or how much money I owned or whatever. Mm. It was almost like it was the right time to have those conversations. And I did. And when I came out my final counselling session, I would say fully cured near enough. Amazing. I, I vowed to myself that actually I was going to take my past and I was going to make something good of it because I don't want to waste all those experiences that I'd had. I'd had those for a reason. Mm. What was I going to do with it? And over a period of time, that's what turned into the 401 challenge. Incredible. Yeah, there's kind of no stopping us now. Yeah. And I don't that in an arrogant way, but, you know, we've done the 401 challenge and that was an incredible project. But the next 5, 10, 15, 20 odd years, they're going to be amazing because we have got such big plans. Yes. And actually, we are literally, we want to change the world. We do. And I know a lot of people listening will think, oh, my God, that's a really big and arrogant statement. But you know what? It takes statements like that to change the world. Mm, you know what? Even it. if we fall just short of it, we'll have still done something good. Absolutely. And that's and what an inspiration. And we'd mentioned briefly a few times now about your incredible 401 Marathon Challenge. Mm. That was back in 2016. Please, could you tell us a little bit more about the challenge? Because that's where a lot of it started, right? And what inspired it? What did that experience involve? Well, kind of top line, really, what the challenge was, was me running uh, 26.2 miles every single day for 401 days in a row, which Ooh. equates to basically 10,500 miles or from the UK to Sydney in Australia. So it's halfway mm -hmm. around the world. And it was to raise a quarter of a million pound for two anti-bullying charities, Stonewall and Kidscape. And the reason for that was because, you know, having kind of come out of my therapy and decided on wanting to do a large scale challenge to make a difference, I kind of figured out that actually to raise money for two charities that, that related to me, you know, so Stonewall from the LGBT side of things, mm. were the amazing work that they do to kind of allow me the privilege to be the person that I am today, you know, to be able to walk down the street holding my husband's hand and not fear. You know, it's down to charities like them. So I wanted to pay that back and say thank you. But then also Kidscape, the UK's biggest anti-bullying charity. You know, I'm still an ambassador for them and the work that they do internally within schools to kind of help bolster and build the confidence of young people. It just seemed like a perfect way to pay back and ensure that children didn't have to go through what I went through. So that was the reasoning, the why behind we were, what we were doing, the kind of what was the marathons themselves. But, you know, the logistics, it was, I sold my house. I sold everything that I owned. <laughs> I literally cleansed my entire life, barring my, 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 my husband, um, <laughs> my boyfriend at the time. And as I already told you, he hated to run. We met nine months before the challenge started. Wow. And when I told him on our first date that I was going to go and run, he didn't bat an eyelid. Amazing. And I thought, you're a keeper. I don't think <laughs> yeah. he heard me, but, you know. <laughs> but, he but, he yeah. thought you said 4.1. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably didn't understand what I was saying to him. He was just like, yeah, yeah, no problems. But, yeah, he stuck with me right the way through. You know, my mum and dad came out of retirement, and my dad, being ex-military, he, he was the one that helped me work with the running clubs around the country that helped us plan the marathons. We had over 250 running clubs around the country wow. that planned marathons in over 309 different locations of the UK, all the way from Land's End to John O'Groats. We ran within eight miles of everywhere on the British mainland. Wow. We ran with 13,500 people, of which 1,600 of those actually ran further than they'd ever run before. <laughs> because, again, part of the project wasn't about me running a fast marathon. The goal was to hit 401, not to run one, kill myself and, you know, because I've run it fast and not be able to run afterwards, which some people didn't get. Mm. So I used to run at the pace of the slowest runner, which then meant that people actually felt they could come and join in, which was mm. exactly what we wanted. We wanted to bottle that feeling that I'd got from running over the past four years before and actually give it to people and say, 
you don't need to be fast. Mm. You know, you just need to move your feet a little bit faster than walking and you're there (laughs) and you put the fun in and you take the pressure off. You know, we had some people, we had over 500 people run their first marathon and I'm not talking people that had trained for it either. We had Mm. one lady and it was actually in Kent. It was on the day that we crossed the line in Whitstable, the world record line. She'd never run more than three miles in her life before. Oh, my God. But she had a personal reason, and I won't share it, but she had a personal mm. reason as to why she was getting involved. And that day she ran her first marathon. What a woman. I know. And we're not talking, she wasn't in her 30s, she was in her 50s, you know. But she went on to then run, I think, four or five more marathons after that. You know, it, it changed people's lives. And actually, that wasn't something that we thought the project was going to do when we first kind of... Uh, started to plan it. We knew it was going to have an impact, or what we at least hoped it was. But we thought that impact was only going to be financial in the sense mm. of it was going to raise the money. But actually, what ended up happening was the project started to have this almost kind of carnal impact on people because they got behind the reasons behind why we were doing it. And actually, it then became their challenge. So rather than it just being me shouting about bullying is wrong you know, love everybody for who they are, you know, no matter what it is, find the thing that makes you happy. It wasn't just me shouting, it was 13 and a half thousand other people, plus the hundreds of thousands of other people that supported us socially. And actually, that's how it became successful. It wasn't me. I was just the nutty dude with a long <laughs> beard and looking really scraggly that decided to go and run. You know, it was everybody else that made it a success. And that's then afterwards, what we decided to build the legacy on, which then came in the form of the mental health foundation yeah and it really was such a powerful movement um like I said at the time 2016 was my first ever marathon the London one and I remember training for it and I was running for click sergeant my reason for running was never about being fast it was all in memory of a friend and I wanted to raise awareness for a young cancer charity And I remember in the online Facebook group there was so much atmosphere and buzz around what you were doing Um, Not only like for you as an individual, what an incredible feat to achieve as a human being. But again, like you talk about this movement and the positive energy it created. And there were so many people that were doing their marathon for the first time. And again, we're all part of a charity group. So that is most people's drive is for the charity. A lot of them weren't runners and seeing you running around the country and then hearing you're going to be in their area really created just this positive effect around running there were so many first-time runners that were like oh my goodness you know he's coming to my area I'm going to run with him and I speak to this person and they've never run before yeah but do you know what you say it was helpful to them but it was so helpful to me Mm. because actually you know I'm I'm if I can tell I like to chat I'm a chat (laughs) I love to chat um you know I'm not one of these silent runners you can't (laughs) shut me up when I'm on a run um but I think it was some guy said to me that if you can run and talk at the same time, you're running at the perfect pace. <laughs> but I've always stuck that in my head. Yeah, I think it was my friend Colin that told me that. But yeah, for me, like, I'm the same as you. Running was about the people. It was about the experiences. And actually having all those people turn up at different locations around the UK, you know, was such a huge support for me because if I had had to have done them all on my own, I don't think I'd have been able to do it, to be perfectly honest with you. I think I probably would have given up. Mm. But knowing that I was almost being held to account every day at times, you know, that was good to feel needed in that sense. But also hearing people's stories or being part of people achieving things that they never thought they could achieve. You know, when you see that look in someone's eye, when they've gone a little bit further than they thought, they broke that barrier that they thought, I'm never going to get through that. And then they go a little further and it's almost like this, um, you know, it's like almost they become a child again. Yeah. And yeah, that, that, that was what kept me going every single day. Genuinely, that is what kept me going every single day. And I just wanted to bottle that. And in a way, this is what inspired the 401 Foundation. Mm. You know, if you can build someone's confidence and you can build their self-esteem and if you can empower communities to be, you know, whether or not that's financially or through awareness, to be able to almost pocket that and 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 build that even further so it almost becomes sustainable Mm. then we can start to change society and its attitudes towards things 
And actually, that's what the foundation is about. That, yeah. that's, that's what our goals are. Big and lofty. <laughs> <laughs> but what a way to change the world. And you really are doing such incredible work. So speaking of the 401 Foundation, when was this founded? And what do you hope it contributes to the world? Yeah, so it was founded in 2017. So it took us a little while after the 401 Challenge, about a year or so, to kind of figure out what we were going to do. Because I'm sure you can imagine, after doing what I did, there was kind of both a physical and quite a mental effect to to Mm. what I did afterwards. And, you know, it got quite dark and depressing. Not in the sense that a lot of people think, oh, you know, well, you didn't have the limelight on it. I was never bothered about that. That wasn't it, you know that's still here. You know, people still want to know about it. People still want to hear about it. People still buy the book. You know, they, <laughs> they do, you know, it's still alive. So that wasn't it. It was more the fact that I'd achieved a goal that I spent so long trying to plan for and to achieve. And then what I hadn't really thought about was what was I going to do after? <laughs> so it's almost a liken it to a bit like somebody retiring or, you know, a professional athlete or sports person or somebody that's done something quite routine throughout their life to the point where they suddenly then stop that, whether or not that's through injury or through choice. There was no purpose after. Mm. And I had to refine that. Mm. And I had to figure that out. And what I didn't want to do was fall into the same mistakes as what I did kind of growing up, which was to do what other people told me to do. And trust me, there were a lot of people going, oh, well, why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you do that? Or do this or do that? And I was I had to figure it out for myself, but unfortunately that took a lot longer than what I hoped it was going to because of the mental effects. You know, I Mm. suffered quite badly from depression afterwards because my body, unfortunately, was reacting to what it was that I'd done. You know, 401 days of running 26.2 miles, you know, the impact of breaking my back during the project as well, which I did up in Aberdeen. So then running ultra marathons to make the distance up, it, it all culminated in this point when my body just went right my turn you know my turn to recover so it just shut down um and unfortunately what that meant was that I I suffered from insomnia that for for a couple of months and obviously we all know what we're like when we can't sleep we we (laughs) lose our minds a bit and unfortunately the doctors had to put me on antidepressants which you know at the time I was a bit ashamed of and I thought oh well this is great you know I've done all this amazing stuff and I'm on this but actually now I see that actually I needed that in my life at the time and the doctors that I had were incredible. And then along with my family and my husband and the friends and the supporters that we have got me through that period. Mm. And to the point where I, I then had time to really just take a step back and go, what do I want to do? And through all the things that I've discussed with you today, it all culminated in this idea of just wanting to instill people with confidence and self-esteem to make sure that they believe they could lead the lives that they want to lead. Because if we can create a generation of people like that, so that's all we have to do, create a generation of people like that. And it filters down through taught. So yeah, that's, that's the, what the foundation does. We empower local communities and, and local projects to, through, through financial grants. And this is the aspiration. You know, we managed to support a couple, not as many as we hoped at the moment, but we're building and it takes time to do that. That's what Path to the Next Challenge is all about, getting money in to be able to help us achieve that stuff. But our aspirations for the next kind of five to 10 years are, are quite simple. We want to get to the point in the next five years where we're handing out 1.5 million pounds worth of grants every Mm. single year. And we're talking grants of nothing to 3,000 pounds. So small grants, you know, not big, massive grants like the National Lottery or or other other organisations like that. You know, we want to help small local community projects and that money can be used quite powerfully for projects like that. But what we also want to do is we want to create connections between our donors and those projects as well, because not only do local community projects require money, they also require a lot of other things as well, because normally what you find is a lot of these local community projects are run by one person or an individual that does it part-time because they have a job or they volunteer, and actually having other people with experience to be able to kind of always volunteer that experience in through being made aware of this project in the first place you know, can be almost as valuable as handing them a cheque for £3,000. Yeah. So the money that we're hoping to raise off the back of the next project, which is half a million, half of that will go towards supporting community projects in the form of grants. And the other half 
will go to helping us become sustainable as a charity. And what that will involve is the development of a national wellbeing app that allows anybody within the UK to access up to 401 different thousand initiatives and projects around the UK that can support them with their well-being. Wow. So these are all local community projects because, you know, we're all different. Mm. We all suffer from mental health. Let's get that out in the open straight away. We all suffer from it at different times in our lives. We're all different. So therefore, we require different treatment. One thing is not going to solve it. So giving people the access to all these different types of projects around the UK will give them the ability to make that choice themselves, but for something that's right for them. But also, we, as I said, we want to connect our donors to the projects to help those projects then build and become more aware in those areas and financially st- stabilise themselves. And the way we plan to do that is by introducing a 200-strong volunteer ambassador network which will be 401 ambassadors uh, dotted all around the UK that will kind of help us raise money in local community areas to sustain the charity going forward, but also help kind of connect us with local projects that we might not be aware of Mm. and almost complete that circle of support. So communities start empowering themselves. That's the goal. That's the dream. And it's going to take a bit of time. But yeah. Such a smart one as well. Like I love so many of the things that you touched upon there. One of them being, I mean, we discussed it in the very first episode of this podcast, the fact that positive change takes time. There's no way about it. And sustainable change takes time. It takes consistency. It takes a lot of work, but it's Mm -hmm. absolutely worth it. And, you know, all good things do take time. And another thing you brought on the ambassadors, I think that is such a crucial part of any project because I was discussing with this with Click Sergeant, another UK charity, and they were saying they're the eyes and the ears, really. You unfortunately cannot be everywhere. You've been created, like we called it kind of a movement almost. You've created this incredible thing. And in order for that to be sustainable and to keep growing, you need people that are committed in their local communities. And the third thing, I love that you are focused on local communities because something that comes up time and time again that people ask me is like, I want to create positive change, I want to change the world, but I don't know where to start. And so often the best place to start is in your local community, the people around you. That's Mm -hmm. where the most change can often happen. But they're the people that we want to kind of empower Mm. because you've hit the nail on the head in in, in summarizing what what we're trying to achieve here. You know, we want many voices. You know, we don't just want one. If anything, success to me is basically me being able to step away from the foundation in five, 10 years time and to then just carry on and take off even further. That's success, that it doesn't require me. You know, I'm just here for the foreseeable future to turn it into what it is that we want it to be. But we need people to get behind that. So, you know, we are going to be looking to recruit national ambassadors before the end of the year. We've got a big school wellbeing program linked to our next challenge we're launching at the end of this month. Obviously, we've just launched our next project, our charitable project, which is super exciting. That's taken a goddamn ages to fund. But, yes. you know, yeah, it's taken blood, sweat and tears to fund that, especially during COVID as well. But yeah, you know, come back to us in six months time six years time and hey you never know <laughs> we might no, be I I have no doubt especially with how smart your thinking is behind it that it'll be bigger and better than ever and the key to that is inspiring others so it's a chain effect right that's mm. how positive change truly happens and you touched upon you have a very exciting new challenge on yeah. the horizon could you tell us a little bit more about that Yes, it's called the USA Challenge. And this is a hoodie. <laughs> Very <laughs> the nice. The USA Challenge. Like <laughs> blatant, you know, branding. And trust me when I say the book being here is not blatant branding. It's just we're now home office. <laughs> and this is the only place I can put it. But obviously, it's in the fly whenever we do things like this. But I love yeah, it in um, the background. So yeah, the USA Challenge. On the 10th of May next year, uh, 2022, I'm going to be starting out on our next charitable adventure, which will see me run and cycle cycle is a new thing run and cycle 14,000 miles across all 50 US states Goodness what me. that entails is a marathon in every one of the state capitals followed by the cycling between them 
So starting in Augusta in the northeast, which is the capital of Maine, and finishing in Hawaii 104 days later. This on average is around about 140 miles a day. Wow. Um, and yeah, it's an unaided project. So it's only going to be me. So that's quite scary. Logistically, it's a bloody nightmare. The reason why it's unaided is because unfortunately, COVID had a huge impact mm. on the 401 challenge, which is the commercial business that I run, which is paying for all of this. The charity doesn't pay for any of it. That's a separate organization that just benefits from any of the donations that are made from it. And that was something we were very clear on to start with. But yeah, it's uh, it's been difficult, but amazing supporters that have got us to this point, you know, through buying 401 merchandise, to buying the book, to joining us on the virtual tour that we did a little while back, to virtual talks that we do with businesses and, you know, the 400 schools that we've talked to. But also on top of that, you know, we've got amazing sponsors that have come on board. And then, you know, if that wasn't enough, I've been doing Amazon flex shifts to try and bring in the money, you know. But this is the whole point. You want to achieve something. You do everything you can to get to that, no matter what it is. Mm. This is such an important thing for us to make sure that we get off the ground and get it going and get it moving and get it to the point where, you know, in five, 10 years time, we can take a look back and go, do you know what? We created something that's making a huge difference here. And yeah, you never know. There might be a challenge number three. Yeah. let's get two out of the way with maybe a bit of water involved hey well, you know, <laughs> yeah i was talking to an, an australian guy on a podcast the other day and he said well why don't you come to aussie a third one and swim around australia and i went because you have sharks yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say their waters uh, that would definitely up the challenge factor for sure in yeah, no, i want to survive it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we don't want it to be your last challenge. I've got to get through the kind of challenges of the next one. You know, when you you look at the different, you know, terrains to the different elevations, I think we've calculated it that actually the the total elevation gain in the next challenge is 15 times up and down Mount Everest. Mm. So, you know, that's huge. You know, there's one day in Utah where I'm climbing 10,000 feet in a day across 160 miles. You know, there's temperatures when I'm in the uh, Nevada desert, which are up to 50 degrees. It's, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. And to do this all unaided and to make sure that we can, you know, keep it as interactive as possible with people here in the UK is what's vitally important. So, yes. yeah, it's going to be a big project. Just a bit, but so inspirational. And I hope it's inspiring to anyone listening. And I so appreciate your honesty about it as well. The fact of all the things you're doing behind the scenes to fund it yourself. I think that's so important because so many people listening may have their own dreams, whether that's in fundraising or a goal that they want to reach towards. And often we see the end result, especially when we social media is so big these days, you know, you can very much see, you see the part that people want you to see, you know, filters and all or the best parts of people's lives. And often we don't get to see behind the scenes that actually very much, well, almost 99% of the time, it took 20 years to be an overnight success. Yeah. Or, you know, it took thousands of hours to master a skill, or you're doing Amazon Flex in the background to try and fund a project. So I truly appreciate your your honesty with that. I think that's- well, I think so this many- is something- this is something we want to show people. So, you know, just adding on to what I was saying before, we are launching a well-being version of this project for up to 401 schools at the end of April. And basically, we're looking at bringing around 200,000 young people on board to do their own virtual mission as their year group to cover the 14,000 miles. It is amazing. It's very interactive. But what we're also going to be pumping into schools is weekly videos leading up to the challenge, showing the true impact of this, Mm. you know, on me, you know, of me overcoming things, of me suffering. But then during it, they'll get daily videos sent through to them. So they're actually seeing what it really takes to do something like this. So what they're realizing is that actually there are days where you just want to give up. Mm. There are days where you just want to throw it all in and go, I've had enough. But it's how you kind of then suddenly take a stop and you take that step back and you go, right, okay, why am I doing this? You know, am I doing it for the right reasons? Yeah. And actually, if I am, okay, let's keep going. And it's finding that resilience and persistence. And I think it's so vitally important to show young people and, you know, adults, don't get me wrong, mm. all people, but more so our younger generation, because they're the generation that 
if we can get it right with yeah they're going to change the world you know i i honestly couldn't agree more and i think that transparency about needing balance in life is so important like earlier you you said i'm i'm sorry if it's sadistic me saying how actually important it was for me to feel the pain for once cuz i i wasn't feeling anything before I think that in itself is so crucially important that we learn from a young age that you will have both good and bad. You you can't understand them properly if you don't have them at the same time. Like, how do we know something's great if we haven't suffered before? Um, and the fact that even if it is pain, you are feeling something and you can learn from pain. And it's so important to have both. So I, I truly appreciate your transparency. And I think the more honest we can be about those things and to encourage authenticity it's life-saving truly no no I completely agree with you we're on you're preaching to the choir (laughs) (laughs) sure and what is so special I've learned about the 401 foundation is the community that you've built yeah they're Um, amazing aren't they (laughs) they truly amazing which with you as the captain <laughs> um, and being so inspiring yourself, it makes total sense. But you really have created a wonderful community and it just shows, I, I have absolutely no doubt because of that, you'll go from strength to strength. Has your idea of community changed at all since creating the foundation? And what has your community taught you? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know whether or not I even knew what community was when I, before I started all of this, if I'm, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, I've always been part of, of a community, if you look at it just by definition, of as a group of people or a collection of things. But I think what has become so apparent throughout my entire journey is how important community is, and especially over the past year and a bit. Mm. You know, I think, and you know, some people might see this as a little bit unfair or a bit of a judgment on the UK, but you know, or whether or not it's even of the world. But I think if we're completely honest with ourselves, I think we started to lose that sense of community. Even if you, you know, compare it to, you know, the 1950s and 1960s, that sense of community. And I'm not talking about that, so to speak, but, you know, we went from that to this almost kind of like, it's all about us and, you know, we've got to be successful and, you know, let's just nail it kind of thing and not really thinking of others. But what I think the past year and a bit has done is almost reignited that passion mm. for volunteering, for fundraising, for, for realising that actually just looking in on a neighbour or getting to know somebody that you've never, ever met before, it helps. And actually, I think if anything good comes out of this whole kind of past year and a bit, it has to be that. Mm. And I think that's where my kind of sense of community is now, that we we as communities have got so much power to affect good. Yeah. It's how we bottle that up and how we kind of then, you know, transfer that and put that into a plan of action and, and actually deliver it. And I think, you know, this is the right time for our foundation. I really do because, mm. you know, we are going to be coming out of this soon. Yes, we, a lot of things will change. Our whole lives will have changed. The, you already see it with people suffering from the issues around isolation, the anxiety around that, you know, the fear of having to kind of almost go back to this sense of normality. But, you know, th- there is going to be no sense of normality. Normal- normality has changed. And that yeah. is the reality. And that is scary for some people. Mm. But actually, what we also need to look at it is, is as an opportunity to take all the things that we've learned for good out of the past year and a bit and bring those into the new world. That's what we've got to do. And that's going to be difficult because there'll be a lot of people that just want to get back to how it used to be. Definitely. But, you know, a lot of people have got a bit more of a work-life balance now. A lot of people are reassessing whether or not they want to go back to an office. A lot of people are reassessing whether or not, you know, what they've been doing is right for them. And actually, if the decision comes that it isn't, that is okay. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you sometimes have to be a little bit selfish to be able to be there for people in the future. Definitely. I I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it ties up nicely with what we were saying earlier of quite often growing up, we kind of follow this idea of what who we should be and the things we should achieve. And something the pandemic has shown us because so many things have been taken away, 
people working from home and not going into the office, people having to make difficult decisions and possibly losing jobs or getting tighter financially. All of a sudden, when we remove these outside outlets or things that were such a big part of, or we thought were such a big part of who we are, all of a sudden people are having to redefine or work out their purpose again. And what is so uplifting and is such a positive result of the pandemic is I believe so many people, when it came down to it, their purpose is community driven. And they looked at how can I help? So without all of these things that were keeping me occupied and that were so much part of my life and my day, who am I and what do I contribute? And I think there's been some beautiful, beautiful outcomes of that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I just hope that we can keep that going. I really do. I hope we don't just kind of fall back into this almost self-contained kind of way of leading our lives. Yeah, that would be really sad to see if that happens. I agree. I'm sure it won't. I'm sure it definitely won't. I think too much has changed. We've gone too long with the behaviours that we now have. Um, yeah, but, but I think there's real positives for the future. I really do. And I, for one, really, really excited about what the next kind of five, ten years holds. I genuinely am. You know, even if this, you know, doesn't work, even if the plan that we're trying to do now doesn't work, we'll find another plan. <laughs> we'll exactly. still get to the goal that we want to get to. Uh, we just have to do it a different way. We've already seen that with the fact that the USA challenge was cancelled twice. You know, we had funding, we lost it all. We they got money, we lost it all. But now we're there. We've we, we nailed it. You know, the next thing I've got to find is get. How do I get to the US embassy in London to get my visa? I, I I've got a lot of experience with that. I'll help <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Message me. I'll help you. <laughs> yeah, and then book a flight. That's yeah. What we, Next topic, so <laughs> that yeah. bit I might not be able to help on but I've got <laughs> I've got a lot of experience with the American Embassy um but yeah and the 401 Foundation I think is gonna continue to inspire so many people and continue mm-hmm. that positive effect moving forward and before we go we've touched on a few topics here of the power of running and mental well-being for anyone who has been inspired by your work and would like to do some of their own fundraising or like you said find kind of their own passion in life what would you say to encourage people taking on a new challenge for charity if it's something that you want to do it's simple do it it's that simple don't procrastinate about it Don't go, oh, but I won't be able to raise that much or, oh, I don't know how to do this. Just get started. Mm. Just figure it, just figure out what it is that you want to do and then just go for it. Other things will start to fall into place. Don't think that we had the whole 401 challenge planned out, you know, when we started. I was on the start line in Bristol on the 1st of September in 2015, having sold everything with a camper van there, my mum flogging wristbands out of the back of the camper van thinking, are we going to be able to afford it until the end of the week? I don't know, you know? But it's a lot of people, they, they think everything has to be planned. Mm. And yes, that comes down to security and personal things. But actually, do you know what? Sometimes just taking that step back and going, actually, it doesn't need to be meticulously planned. Just do it because that's what stops you. That's what stops most people. Yeah, I think um, now I'm going to do a shameless plug now, but in the book. (laughs) Please do. I don't mean that in in the way I'm saying, but there is a lot in the book about exactly that. And hopefully what we found is a lot of people that have read it, we've sold, I think, over 10,000 copies, which is amazing. But what we found is that, you know, a lot of people that have read it have kind of, they see the story as something that's very relatable to them. And that's how we wanted the book to be. And and actually explains a lot of what we've talked about today. Mm. And hopefully what it'll end up doing is inspiring people to take that next step, whether or not that's, you know, to quit the job that they don't yeah. want or to start that crazy career that they thought was absolutely nuts. But, you know, at the end of the day, some bloke that had a stroke when he was 29 years old, that was 17 and a half stone, a 40-a-day smoker, can start running and go and run a marathon every day for 401 days in a row all around the UK and survive. You can do what you want to do. Trust there me. There we go. There ain't nothing more crazy. <laughs> Unless you yeah. want to be on the moon. And then, hey, shoot me up because I'm well up for that challenge. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The future looks bright. And um, what an inspiration. 
And what incredible advice to leave us on. So thank you so much for sharing that. You mentioned your book, which I've read it myself. It covers your incredible story, but not only that, a lot of other topics that we discussed today. In addition to the book, where can people follow your work and how could they support you further? So from the foundation's perspective, the best place to kind of point you guys is to our website, which is the401foundation.co.uk. So you can read about what the foundation is, why we do what we do, which is the important thing. There are ways in which you can get involved. You can read about the impact the USA Challenge will have on the foundation and potentially as we go forward, you know, how you can get involved if you want to become an ambassador or get involved within the network. But from the challenge side of things, which is through the 401 Challenge, again, you can visit our other website, which is the401challenge.co.uk, or you can follow us on social media at the 401 Challenge, and that's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And yeah, that's where you'll see the day-to-day updates of me brutally training myself and (laughs) trying not to fall off my bike, which is sometimes (laughs) more comical than ever. (laughs) I believe it amazing so yeah please do if anyone listening follow the 401 foundation handles on social media check out the website I'll also make sure we include the information in the show notes as well just to make that easier for people and Ben thank you thank you thank you so much for being so generous with your time and energy today thank you for your continuous work to help improve the mental well-being of others thank you for inspiring so many other people to create positive change within their own communities and thank you for being my kind of person you're very welcome thanks Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of my kind of people i hope you felt the positive energy from this week's guest If this episode was of value to you, then please rate, review and subscribe. It's so greatly appreciated. Thanks again.